0: This episode and all of our Sundance coverage is brought to you by DaVinci Resolve and the Ursa Mini Pro from Blackmagic Design, and the all-new VideoMic Pro Plus from Rode Microphones, the ultimate on-camera shotgun microphone. Hi, everybody. This is Liz Nord, and you're listening to the No Film School Podcast. powerhouse cinematographers who had nine projects between them at Sundance this year. And somehow, despite their busy schedules, I was able to sit down with all four of them on the first day of the festival. Shauna Hagen, Claudia Roshka, Ashley Connor, and Mia Chioffi-Henry have a pretty amazing combined filmography. At Sundance alone, they screened docs, narratives, shorts, and an episodic TV show. What's also cool about this group is that they represent four different decades of DPs having begun shooting professionally in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s, respectively, so they were able to share stories and advice with each other that we can all benefit from. In our wide-ranging conversation, the talented group discusses the benefits of switching between docs and features instead of sticking to just one, how to be the cinematographer your director needs, why cinematography is a people's business, and much more. I think that this conversation will be especially useful to directors and DPs, but any movie lover will enjoy hearing about how the images on screen come together. Hi, everyone. Hi. 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 Welcome. I'm so, so happy that you're all here at Sundance with me. Oh, my God. Um, I'd love to uh, have everyone just introduce yourselves and the films that or projects that you're here with first.
1: I'm Ashley Connor. I'm here with... Two films, The Miseducation of Cameron Post, directed by Desiree Akhavan, and Madeline's Madeline, directed by Josephine Decker.
2: My name is Claudia Raschke. I'm the DP of uh, RBG, which is a feature documentary about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And uh, I'm also here with uh, The Price for Everything, which is directed by uh, Nathaniel
3: Kahn. And they're both feature docs. Um, I'm Shauna Hagan. Um, I'm actually here with four projects, which is a record for me. <laughs> um, the first one is Generation Wealth, directed by Lauren Greenfield. Um, another one is uh, uh, Lenny. <laughs> it's an HBO pilot, a nonfiction uh, series pilot. Um, uh, EP by Alina Dunham and Jenny Connor. Um, our director on our short that I did uh, DP'd was Christine Turner. Um, the third project is Inventing Tomorrow. I was a co-DP. Martina Rodwan, another amazing um, cinematographer, was the main DP. Um, and I was a co-DP on a Mexico unit um, on that one. And then the fourth one is Mr. Rogers, which I just saw um, Won't You Be My Neighbor. So I had some additional photography on that as well. So um, it's great to be here. Thank you.
4: Hi, sorry, I'm Mia Chofi-Henry, and I've already lost my voice at Sundance. I'm here
0: with just one project, a short film called Cheer Up Baby, directed by Adina Danzinger. To Shauna's point, you know, several of you have several projects in the festival, and Mia obviously also has several projects just juggling. So first question is just really practical. How do you find your gigs, and how do you juggle them? How How do you manage your time, your professional time?
1: I don't do it well. I mean, I somehow make it through the year but uh, I don't know. Time management seems to be like the most difficult aspect to our jobs. I feel like this year I worked from straight from like April to mid-December and uh, was taking a break and now I'm might not be I don't know I find my work, yeah, most of my work is
3: in documentaries, and so a lot of times Sundance is a fantastic opportunity for people to see my work, and also when I'm here, I get a chance to network with the people who, say for Nathaniel Kahn, I saw The Power of, uh, The Price of Everything, sorry, Power of Everything as well, Price of Everything, which is fantastic, great work in that, Um, and I met Nathaniel a couple weeks ago and then saw him again today, but it's just sort of, and I've never worked with him, but it was a great opportunity for me to network, um, network with new people, but time management is certainly a challenge, but I think, I love the quote that um, if you want something done, ask a busy woman Um, because it's like exactly, I feel like I'm more productive when I'm busy. And so I try to keep... um Um, you know, sort of keep busy with lots of projects. I think it's a challenge, but it's also exciting to be involved with so many different projects. And I think with so many projects here at the festival, it's also time management is is, is massively important. Just also um, personal, (laughs) like making sure you take care of yourself first. But um, I don't know, it's just, it's uh, how I find my job certainly is just, again, networking. uh, People see my work. Um, I also, um, if I have a, a particular director I like to work with I you know find a way to kind of meet that person either at a screening at Sundance or some other way but um I don't know I feel like I'm babbling and I know that like sometimes that like us as DPs I think that one of the reasons we're behind the camera is that often we don't like to talk about our work and ourselves but it's an interesting exercise in trying to articulate what we do and why
0: we do it but anyway thanks for having me so (laughs) well we're you know you're visual people (laughs) but it's one of the things I love about being part of no film school is that we get to talk to DPs and, and talk to the folks who don't always get the interviews and you have so much insight into how this work actually gets made. So I think it's a lot of putting words to things that we do
4: just on a day-to-day basis that we don't even know are really part of, like, a specific part of being a DP. Um, I, For me, how I get work is really word of mouth through friends, through um, past collaborators, Um A little bit through, I went to uh, grad film school and so some connections through that, but mostly just either people see projects that I've shot and they ask the person who directed it or um, they kind of see it on their own online on NoBudge.com, on Vimeo, on on whatever and kind of... uh, reach out from there, but I'm, I'm also, I'm actually not as busy as I would love to be because I'm very picky with the projects that I, I choose right now. I have a one and a half year old daughter, so I kind of, uh, time management is a whole a whole new game in that, in that regard. I know you know about that.
2: Yeah, I sure do. I have two kids, but they are older teenagers now, so I've uh, been in the business since uh, 84, which is a long time. Um, and I did uh, feature films, for 10 years and uh, switched over to feature documentaries and TV dramas. And um, ultimately, you know, your work is what is your best calling card. And for me, time management is um, really divided up between family, the things I'd like to do. I also um, invent games. So I have a whole like different... Like digital th- games? No, they're actually board games. Because... Oh, hell It's yes. really cool. <laughs> <laughs> you want
1: to you tell us about one of these? I'm coming
0: over... Later. It's going to be a I, whole other I, episode <laughs> now. Yeah. I'm writing it down.
2: I personally really, you know, the having kids and uh, managing my time being away very often uh, taught me that when I have the time to be home with my kids that I really needed to make them special. So um, with that came a lot of board games and activities where I... I was really involved, and um, I find board games brings out your personality. It uh, is a bonding time, and uh, so that's got me very in- got me very interested. But in terms of how I get work, it is really I for a long time I had an agent um, that represented me while I was in the feature uh, film industry. And then when I went into feature docs, um, it shifted. And it was really uh, very apparent that it is a people's business. And you don't really get a job unless somebody trustworthy will recommend you. And so it is uh, in everybody's interest to go to... um, social gatherings events as you said you know film festivals be at a screening be involved and that is how you kind of you know connect
0: i'm curious actually this wasn't the original direction i was gonna go but now um i know that ashley goes between various you know types of platforms shauna has tv and film here i mean you all do that and then you really claudia made a, a very conscious switch from feature to doc so Talk about that a little bit. I want to start with you and, and hear why you made that choice. Well I was working for Miramax. Ooh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a whole podcast. A whole podcast. <laughs> no. no but uh, kidding aside so here was my story I was on a complete track on just doing feature films and I um, when you do a feature film I was flying around being in remote locations four months at a time and you know you you kind of come home and you crash and you know I fell in love We wanted kids, and then the question is, how do you manage your time at that point? And it became very clear to me that uh, I can certainly go on doing feature films, but then I have to have a full-time nanny because my husband was also, you know, working full-time. And uh, I really didn't sit right with me because it was really uh, something I wanted. I wanted to be present, and so I just decided to switch and do only East Coast features and um, focus on feature documentaries. So often what happens now is that I have three projects simultaneously that work because feature documentaries don't get their funding um, in one batch. And so you basically have uh, a project to work on intermittently. And so it carries you through you know, in a different way, and I can be... With my kids when I when they need it and I when I actually when I wanted to
0: me what about you do you travel between the various uh,
4: platforms, um, I do right now I haven't shot a feature yet and um, I'm hoping that's going to happen this year I've got a couple things sort of. Uh, Percolating, um, but I'm mostly working in shorts, music videos, in the commercial worlds, and um, and actually some some doc work as well. But it's really um, I'm I'm much more interested in a script at the moment. I'm. Um, very interested in breaking down a script and getting to the psychological understanding of characters and moments and, and planning out beats and all of that. That's like what really thrills me about this job is sort of the analytical aspect of it, taking words and translating them visually. So I, um, I'm trying to stay more in the narrative world than anything else. And um, I don't know, just uh, I, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of taking it moment by moment. I like being Getting deep into something rather than bouncing around too much.
3: Yeah, um, I think for me, um, it's kind of a. I, I do docs. I do. I've done a, a three features. I've done a fair amount of commercials. Done episodic television. I've done branded content. Pretty much everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like each of these projects—they're all storytelling. They're all forms of storytelling. So I feel like what I can bring to the table. Um, each job like teaches me a different way to, to tell a story. So a feature, you approach it one way, a doc, you approach it another way. A commercial, you certainly approach it a completely different way, but learning something, say how to think on my feet. I've also done reality television, so I'm not sort of proud of it, but that said, and looking in hindsight, um, uh, it taught me how to think on my feet. Um, and also think alone. Often I'm, you know, you're out there. I uh, did Survivor. I was four seasons on Survivor, Holy and um, um, basically you're so with so much to ask you about that. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> but it, honestly, it, for a while I was really kind of nervous, a uh, nervous or um, uninterested in kind of uh, saying out loud that I worked on Survivor because reality television has such a bad sort of reputation. But honestly, looking in hindsight, I. I I learn to think on my feet, like and and also often we're out there without producers and without directors, so you're kind of trying to tell the story visually without really much influence, and you're just, you know, what I do and what I feel like I do best in my documentary work is is pure observational verité. Mm-hmm. So being kind of, um, you know, there kind of just following the story, listening, paying attention to, you know, emotionally responding to a scene, all that stuff is, um, so. What I learned from reality television, I can apply in a documentary world, or what I learn on a commercial, I might be able to. So each discipline kind of can inform my work on other disciplines, if that makes sense. So I can take stuff that I learned doing a feature and you know, vice versa. Also, um, as in a literal example too, in a doc environment, you know, sometimes you go into a, a situation where you can't light a scene, but you find this beautiful shaft of light that creates this sort of evokes this mood that then on a feature you want to kind of recreate that. So only in the documentary environment that you've observed that, then can you, you know, kind of feel the mood that that light evokes and then you kind of then can say in your next doc you have this great, or great feature that you have an opportunity to kind of recreate that um, so one informs the other. So I, I like mixing it up. I mean, I do, my heart is with documentaries. I feel like I'm sort of a sensitive being and I, I enjoy the um uh being engaged on a level with documentaries that uh, the other projects don't i don't really feel um engaged that's that said i, I enjoy everything I, I love just i love the work so
2: well i i actually wanted to just uh, refer to what you were saying in terms of the difference between feature films and documentaries because it's uh, uh quite amazing of how it shifts you know during my time doing a uh, feature um films, um, all the sculpting of the light and the choreography with the camera and the shot listing and, you know, uh, serving the story with visuals to support the subtext, all of that work, that, that training, you know, when you go then and take that into the documentary, it uh, um, you all of a sudden feel like, oh my God, you know, I really don't need to light. Because look, if I'm position- positioning myself in this sweet spot in this location, oh my God, it is the, rec- the lighting it's ratio easy. is beautiful, it's, yeah. you know, and the art then becomes the choice of um, you know uh, your exposure of how you set your iris, you know, and how do you take advantage of what's given, and you know it it does a different kind of brain gymnastics mm-hmm. um, that uh, <laughs> really is very fulfilling, and I find that the one thing that uh, feature films. It, which is, you know, wonderful to do because you do lighting, you know, and you have the, the control, the creative control. But with documentaries, it's all the spontaneity and connecting to your character and floating organically when you're doing variety And when you're doing variety the decisions are, you know, split-second decisions because you have to be understanding the story, get yourself in the right position, and capture it, you know, in an authentic way. And that is a whole different challenge that I can't carry into feature films. That is something that is missing because it is created. However, Hmm. doing feature films, you know, you have your palette of different tools where you paint with light, where you do, you know, extraordinary moves and frames. But but
4: don't you feel, sorry, Ashley, don't you feel a little bit that that knowing those things, knowing how to capture that... um, And look for those things on an emotional level helps you kind of recreate those things out as well on an emotional level. I mean, I know that you haven't sort of gone back to uh, feature work since working in documentary much, but that sort of understanding of it, the more you know, the more you can do and the more you can do, the more you know.
2: Well, it it certainly feeds each other, but, you know, I'm doing this documentary called The Bit Player right now, and it's about a gentleman who is a mathematician who um, um, passed away at the beginning of uh, uh, 2003. And uh, he was this genius, and there's no video archival footage of him. Mm. Now, how do you tell a story when you have a man and his life, and what are you going to do? So, of course, there are recreations. And so we've done, you know, my feature uh, knowledge. Mm -hmm. I did recreation of the 1920s, of the 1940s in black and white and and noir style, and the uh, 1980s in terms of, you know, um, the... well, the that 80s. kind of, no, yeah. kind of like the, the 80s, VHS uh, 16 look. millimeter, mm. you know, look in terms of, uh, you know, the color rendition and uh, so the it, it is, and yeah, and exactly. Kind of it's a, then that comes, all that feature knowledge mm-hmm. comes back in, you know.
0: So there's a conversation between your, the work. I mean, it makes mm-hmm. sense. Ashley, we haven't forgotten you.
1: Um, I just feel like similar adjectives that you use to describe your doc work is how I would define my narrative work. And I think I do work from an emotional level. I do work from instinct. I do, and you know, on lower-budget independent films, you don't really have all the time in the world to, like, sculpt and shape every single piece of light because you have to make your day. So I think it is, and I think, you know, I get asked to do docs a lot, but, like, time-wise, it never really functions for me because I usually have another project lined up so it's like you know I got asked for a Netflix doc series and it was like we need you four days a month for the next six months and I was like absolutely not like I can't I can't do that <laughs> I would take that job yeah <laughs> but but at the end of the day I think what we're all talking about is artistic practice and I think what maybe defines a lot of our work is kind of the emotional subtext that we feel when we're with a camera and holding a camera and speaking with a subject, whether it be artificial script wise or in a doc setting, I think the way I respond to actors is through some sense of reality and kind of, you know, basing my work around that tenant. And it's not always that way, but that's what gets me off the most, I guess.
4: And it's a good place to start, too, for any scene, whether it's super stylized or it's very naturalistic, to just like start from the, the truthful emotion of the scene of the moment and then go for there.
0: So we're talking about about the style of, of work, but what about directors? Are there qualities that you look for in a director that you want to partner with and or like a specific way you like to collaborate with directors?
1: <laughs> I, I mean, for me... I like a director who can make a decision, and sometimes that's just a director who needs to learn how to say no, or what they don't like as is as important as what they do like. And you know, cause directing, you're just answering questions all day, and you're trying to like keep the heart of the film alive and like keep that heartbeat going steady. But, like, if you can't make a decision, everything fades away. So that's kind of what I look for in a director. And then, you know, whether or not – if they're more visually conscious, that's great. But if they're not, I feel like I can kind of step up more in that regard. But, yeah, and I don't know. I don't really mind somebody who yells. I don't mind whatever. I'm pretty, like, uh, tough in that regard. I don't think that people should, but – You know, as long as the work's good and what you're making at the end of the day, you guys can kind of like pat each other on the back and walk out and think that like you were both working towards the same goal.
3: I think for me, right, bouncing off of your communication is a key. I mean, just, um, you know, most of my doc work. we're constantly communicating about story, about character, about, you know, we're constantly kind of, um, yeah, I, I often try to watch dailies with a director at night. Sometimes it's not possible, but we try to find out what's working, what's not working, uh, what stories resonated most or what character beats, whatever. But, um, but I also think, um, in my, again, in my documentary work, I think it might be, um, a little bit different in, in, uh, in, uh, in the feature environment but in the documentaries I, I appreciate a director that's patient um, my verite work um, I've worked with so many directors who are very impatient and they're going after like the shiny objects I always call it you know they want to shoot this they want to shoot that they want to shoot this oh that's happening let's go do that and we never really have the the sort of ability to shoot a beginning middle and an end of a story and so sometimes if they're always following the shiny objects it's um, it's a little challenging to kind of flesh out a story completely. I I enjoy directors that um, can kind of tell me what they want, and to your your point, kind of be very clear about what they want. Um, In a documentary environment, sometimes that's not possible, but at least you can talk about the ideas that you want. Or say, for example, uh, you know, this character's having a... They just had a fight. These two married couple... These two people are married, they... Having some marital problems, they just had a big fight. Let's try to visualize that. This is a scene of them making dinner. Then um, that's a real life I- experience. A, a gentleman I've worked with, Michael apted is an amazing director, and he said, "Look, we we you know we're doing a, a day in the life of a married couple, and and uh, he gave me the, the sort of information um, without telling me what to do. But he said they've had a fight. We want to try to visualize that in any way. They're cooking dinner, um, which is sort of seemingly mundane, but he was chopping the carrots with with such um, kind of uh, uh, he was frustrated, and his so I got a lot of uh, a lot of cutaways of the visual. You know, she's slamming the plates down on. You know, as she's as she's setting the table, and he's chopping. You know, sort of visualizing the anger in the and the sort of tension in the scene without um, without kind of um, without them speaking about it. But um, but anyway, I like I also like when people when directors can just kind of let things happen. I, I think in a documentary environment, sometimes that can be very unnerving to just be there and kind of be patient. But I think that's where the gold um, is when when. Uh, directors can trust their shooters when the, the the subjects can trust the director. I mean, um, I don't know, I'm getting off key, but or off track. But I, I feel like it's it's about trust. It's about communication. It's about patience. It's just also about knowing what your story is. I mean, in a feature environment, that's the same in a doc. Every you know, what's the story? What's the what's the story we're telling? And also being on the same team. Yeah, having having somebody. Um, I'd like a director who's who's your who will advocate for you, but also. Sort of uh, realize you're you're definitely both on the same team.
4: There's so many things. There's a, a wish list can be so long for a director in our minds, but every directing collaboration and DP collaboration is kind of unique in its own way. For me, I think what I really love in a director is somebody who can get the whole team on board behind their singular vision. Mm. You know, when I when I'm asked to do things that are uh, kind of beyond my capabilities in terms of time or equipment or um, sort of, they want something that looks higher budget than it is, whatever it is, if, if I feel like I'm in good hands with their vision, I feel like if the crew feels like they're in good hands with their vision, then everybody's working towards the same goal. I think it's, it's easier said than done to kind of get everybody marching in the same direction on a film set. And um, to me, a good director is somebody who's got a vision doesn't have to be visual but it has to be some sort of direction that we're all moving towards and and I really look for that in a collaboration.
2: I totally agree you just completely nailed it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. The thing that uh, um, kind of stands out to me in terms of looking back in terms of the uh, films that I shot and the experiences that I had with directors there are some really uh some circumstances where you're working really really hard and everybody thinks that they are on the same path and then you feel all of a sudden a lack of respect it just starts happening it starts happening with the crew all of a sudden there is a judgment that's present and we are not making the days and all of a sudden is this is wavering on the director and it and it affects the entire mood and when this respect for the director drops then you know you're in trouble and you know, I I always look out for that. It's like, what is happening here? What's the pulse overall? You know, where is the expectation? Are we really, as you said, all going in, all along the same path and uh, working for the same goal? And does he really have or she really have a, um, a, a vision, and an overarching vision of... Um, what the film will be because look, the fact is that when you're on set, things change. Mm-hmm. You can have a script, you can have it storyboarded, you can have a schedule, and your AD knows the shot list for each particular scene, but then there is free form. The actors think that it doesn't work that way and they should try something else, and all of a sudden you're in a debate, and then you're losing time, and then you have to make up for the time, and which scene are you gonna cut? And all of a sudden everything shifts, and to be prepared for that shift, then you have to have a, re- a true leader who knows what is essential in order to tell the story and where to, you know, uh, alter the course. And that's what I look for in a director, somebody who has a firm, you know, grasp of uh, what happens if it doesn't work out. You know, what is, you know, the ultimate goal. And for, that's for feature films... The same as it is for documentaries, because in documentaries you have a subject and you're shadowing a character for a while, and all of a sudden it runs flat. Wave happens. Doesn't develop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't develop, you know. And so, you need that kind of uh, vision in a director. I think in that same vein too is the DP. You're really um,
4: you have to you have to be. 100 percent behind the director in a lot of ways and kind of the surrogate of the director's vision and be able to communicate that to your crew. And um, if you if you start to waver yourself on on trusting them at any given moment, you can also lose your crew very easily uh, because they they don't feel then in good hands. And then their work is not kind of moving in the same direction.
1: I want to believe that we're kind of beyond (laughs) some sense of like a tour theory that, you know, the director is like the all leading person. And I think, especially in my more recent collaborations, what's so exciting is when the director turns and says, I don't know. And if it is a collaboration, then it is being like, let's talk about this. And it is developing like different kinds of sets where like people, like, If I have a question, sometimes I'll turn to my AC and be like, dude, does this look like garbage? Or like, is it just me? You know, like you want to, but like, I feel like, I feel like you have to be capable of questioning the director and making sure that like, because sometimes, because sometimes directors can like go off on tangents and not quite see like, And that's what pre-production does. It's like you get on the same page so that hopefully you don't have those questions. But if you feel like they're kind of wavering, then you're capable of like helping them write the course. I
4: I think that's definitely true. And I think that knowing the script, knowing the story, knowing the characters, knowing whatever it is, the angles uh, that you want to tell the story, like as good as the director, knowing it that deeply, that when they do begin to question themselves, like being able to back them up is important. But I, I kind of prescribe to that like, the director is, is the one in charge because like everybody needs to believe in in a single single vision because too many cooks well let me ask you this uh, then if, if
0: that mood you know starts to creep as claudia you know eloquently described it if you start to feel those tingles on a set like uh maybe this is like starting to lose people so a lot of our listeners are young up and coming directors what what would you advise a young, you know, or any director to do if they're starting to feel like they're losing their, their crew a little bit? What what are some tactics for for reining it all back in, getting the confidence back up? As a DP or you mean What can the director do, like from the perspective of Take a DP a who breath. manages the rest of the crew?
1: <laughs> I mean, it's hard because low budget because we have the capability of making films at such a low budget, it means that people who might not be ready to direct a film get to direct a film. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of, I work with a lot of first time directors and a lot of my job is to like help them and like bring them to get their power back. But sometimes the power is not always there. So it is about empowering them. It is about like bringing them back. And I think when directors start to lose the crew you know yeah like taking a step back even like taking a half day off and just kind of like reorienting or something or like doing something to like kind of build group morale up again because making films is hard and there's a lot of sensitive emotional people on set Mm -hmm. as there should be but like feelings are involved so you know you just have to like know how to kind of right the ship when it's going off course.
2: And it is tricky because, you know, it can uh, origin from, from an actor that uh, they've they been cast and then you find out it's a miscast. Yeah. What do you do with an actor that doesn't perform, that overacts, that, you know, that's a, that's a very hard situation to be in because the script is written, especially in feature films. Um, I think that the advice that I would give to uh, any you know, uh, director, um, is at the point when they feel that they are not sure, that uncertainty enters their playing field, that uh, they look at their cinematographer and their producer as a a collaborator on, on equal footing and say, like, look, I am unsure because X, Y, and Z has happened. You know, do you have any ideas? Can we figure something out? And then, or... If that's one scenario. The other one would be if I sense that the director that I'm working with is unsure, that uh, I will, and and it's losing their ground and going off on a tangent, as you were saying. Then at that moment, I uh, try to pick what I think is the right and the, the golden moment. And I said like, wow, this moment was really great. And try to remind them of what we were after Mm. so that they themselves can come to the realization oh my god I'm off course because you can't really say to a director hey buddy you're off course (laughs) you know you have to have a very good trusting relationship in order to be that frank and a director does not want to lose face and so you have to have that uh, um, you know awareness that how you're presenting something is uh, guiding somebody so that ultimately they find their their way back.
1: Or if a script is involved or like an idea for a doc, then it's really about being like, hold on, you wrote this. Let's talk about why you wrote this before we like, throw it away or like, what's the beat? What's the heart of the scene? You know, like just kind of asking them questions because they usually, yeah, I find that asking directors questions to like engage them and like bring them back to what it is. When they wrote it, (laughs) it's like usually exactly exactly. I
4: like to kind of play the exercise. If we could only uh, tell this, if we could only do this scene in one shot where would we put the camera and that usually kind of resets the brain and says okay what is the most important thing where would we put the camera if we were getting kicked out of this location after this one take and i think that that's kind of a, a good or i call it like wish list shot listing where you mm-hmm. say if we if we only have 3 three more shots in this place what are the most important things that you need to get to get this in the edit and 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 tell this story and then anything else on top of that that's just gravy mm-hmm. and and we love gravy but let's let's get this right and then like release ourselves from from that sort of tension.
3: No, all I was gonna say was sort of bounce off of all of what everybody else is saying. I mean, in, in the documentary environment, a lot of times uh, directors are um, either shut out of a location, or an interview setup doesn't happen, or there's something that you know that that fails, or that we you know someone doesn't want you something there. Something doesn't want us there. So then I'm often like um, you know. You, you kind of have to be their cheerleader and say, you know, hey, here's what we can do. Okay, we can't do that, but let's, let's, here's a, a few options what we can do. Hey, we can go shoot B-roll. We can go, trying to, st- or, you know, any other options. Or, hey, we, what if we turn around? You know, maybe we, um, you know, if that didn't really work because we didn't notice that on the scout or luckily rare to have a scout on a, a, a documentary. But in any case, um, you know, if a location or something doesn't work out. Um, I often try to provide them with some, some real opportunities for or real possibilities for like other things we can do. Trying to stay positive, you know, trying to stay um, as, as, as as uh, uplifting and positive as possible. I mean, I think, um, uh, again, with the, I mean, the feature directors, I think, um, I don't know, features and docs are sort of different, but also very similar. But in, again, in the documentary environment, if, if things aren't really going that well, I think it's just about what we do have versus what we don't have and what we have gotten. Um, it's kind of all, at least in the doc environment, a lot of times people lament what we don't get. Like, oh, we missed that. Oh, we missed that shot. Oh, we didn't. But uh, sometimes we have the old saying, I'm sure um, Claudia knows it too, if we didn't shoot it, it actually didn't happen. I mean, (laughs) you know, we can't prove that it happened. So, but I'm trying to stay positive and trying to stay, you know, think about the things we do have and and rather than the things we don't have. And knowing that things often get repeated. There's often opportunities, even if something is only, quote, happening once. Um, there's always uh, ways to tell a story, um, you know, like you're the one you're doing now. If there's no actual footage, you're recreating it and doing a creative way of telling a story. And, um, you know, often sometimes in this sort of seemingly like sort of temporary failure or temporary um, kind of distraction, you can discover new ways of doing things that might be better than your original plan. So um, that's always kind of exciting to kind of come up with new new ideas of, of uh, kind of tackling a, a challenge that comes your way. So
0: I feel like that sort of circles back to our talk about um, traveling between doc and feature too, because I come from the doc world and I have worked only on a couple narrative things. And I found that having that doc experience allowed me to be so much more flexible on set. Like, I knew how to pivot because of being a doc person in a way that the narrative folks, like, did, were freaking out about. Right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting. Girl, and, I can pivot. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, and it's also because, you know, look, the uh, feature industry or the feature film um, sets are hierarchical. It's very military. Right. It is, everybody has a very specific job. Whereas in documentaries... Everybody does everything. Oh please, the producer is holding the boom. Yes, exactly, or even shooting second camera, or the director is shooting while you're shooting. You know, it's like it's all a true, you know, effort to uh, make it happen.
0: Originally designed for Hollywood's elite colorists, DaVinci Resolve has been used on more feature films and TV shows than anything else because it lets you create images that are simply impossible with other tools. The latest release of Resolve now incorporates full nonlinear editor functionality and fully featured Fairlight audio, integrated directly with color tools to provide a comprehensive and complete pipeline for finishing. Recently introduced and making an impact around the industry for its high quality and flexible form factor, the Ursa Mini Pro Professional Digital Cinema Camera combines incredible image quality with the features of a traditional broadcast camera. Ergonomically designed, controls on the side of the camera allow you to adjust most settings by feel and without ever having to take your eyes off the action. Ursa Mini Pro also features built-in ND filters, a status display and a revolutionary new interchangeable lens mount that lets you change between EF photographic lenses or PL, B4 and F mount lenses. Ursa Mini Pro is lightweight and comfortable enough to use all day has controls that are extremely fast to use, and image quality that's far superior to broadcast cameras, costing 10 times more. That's the Ursa Mini Pro Professional Digital Cinema Camera from Blackmagic Design. The all-new VideoMic Pro Plus from Rode Microphones is jam-packed with useful features for shooters on the go. The automatic power function is perfect for the run-and-gun shooter, automatically turning the microphone off when unplugged from the camera. The mic's built-in battery door makes replacing the battery a breeze, plus it won't get lost. It has multiple power options, including the all-new Rode LB1 Lithium-Ion Rechargeable Battery, two AA batteries, or powering continuously via micro USB. The VideoMic Pro Plus also offers digital switching, which ensures that you have ultimate capture of the audio signal at the source, reducing post-production and editing times. Finally, the high frequency boost will boost high frequencies, enhancing detail and clarity in the recording, and there's a safety channel that helps ensure the signal does not clip when unexpected spikes occur. That's the all new VideoMic Pro Plus from Rode Microphones. you have each referenced this kind of director's vision idea. And I'm, I'm always curious about the conversations that happen, like how directors might tell you what they're thinking and then how and then you're like left with this thing that you have to execute and we could talk about that all day so i'd love to stick to the films that you have here maybe one or both or you know were there any particularly sort of interesting challenges put before you as a dp for these projects that you then got to wrestle with and and how did you figure it out
3: so Lenny, this series of documentary shorts, um, the one that I did is called Dead is Better, um, directed by Christine Turner. And we're, the subject of the film is a woman, a writer, performer. Um, she she's a lot of spoken word. She's obsessed with death. Um, and she's a writer and does her research she does these things where she um, she writes uh, letters to dead people dead mainly dead celebrities so dear River Phoenix I never knew you but if we were in high school together I probably we probably would have dated Yeah, yeah. so um, it's interesting and it's fascinating work and really really amazing um, but the challenge of telling a story about a writer who does a lot of sort of internal like you know she's sitting on the computer doing research internet research um, how do you make that visually exciting um, to hold a you know we never really want the idea of it was to do maybe a five to seven minute short so we knew we didn't have to have a lot of uh, footage but how much footage can you have of a woman on a computer in eight different positions in her home on a bed and a desk and whatever it's like so so we ended up um, you know Christine and I sort of brainstormed and and uh, you know did a lot of um, the particular case that she's without revealing the details you'll have to go see Dead is Better or watch uh, Lenny on HBO um, we, we did a lot of uh, you know we we Encouraged her to certainly go out and do a lot of research out in the field. So we did a lot of really creative b-roll of her kind of walking around and in, in a graveyard and all stuff that's very specific to the story that she's researching. So, um, but that was a, a real challenge to kind of try, try to visualize somebody who does something very uh, internal. Uh, you know, an artist at work. Um, I don't know. So that that was a challenge certainly um, with with Lenny and
0: how to do. Oh, it?
3: oh well we, no we just we ended up shooting tons of b-roll of her you know in in the. Uh, um, we found lots of interesting and unique ways to, specifically with different B-roll setups. So, um, you know, we had maybe five or six different locations. We actually only shot on three days, one of one of which was mostly her interview and a lot of, of her on the computer in her in the house where she grew up. She was investigating a crime that happened in the neighboring town where she grew up. So we were able to get a ton of B-roll, her just sort of doing her thing. But also what, what made it more authentic for us was her just literally doing... Um, it was a, a departure for her that she was actually going and talking to people that knew the knew the boy that was murdered. So, um, and it was unique to her because she hadn't done it before. So it was sort of there was um, a realness, a, a sort of authenticity about it that, that sort of made it. Um, but um, initially, when it was on paper, it was sort of like this woman's writing an article about, um, you know, or writing a letter to a, a person she didn't know. And I don't know the on on paper it was really challenging, but we found a way. Um, and,
1: uh, I think for the two films I have here, I kind of approach directors in similar ways. I'm like, give me everything. Give me what, what are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching? What, what did you watch recently that you hated? And sort of slowly start to like build a world around that. And with Desiree's movie, which is like a teenage uh, girl gets sent to a gay conversion therapy camp. um, And, you know, we set in the 90s, so we were looking at footage from the 90s. We were listening to a lot of 90s playlists. We were, you know, looking at a lot of Instagram today for, like, teenage girls. And then, really, it became about refining what it means to be in an institution. And so that was kind of, like, our goal there was, like, how to create an institutionalized teen story that kind of, like, breaks out. Um and also like would speak to somebody the similar, you know, I talked a lot about like, uh, virgin suicides, mm-hmm. which like when I watched in high school, I was like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> got the poster, got the soundtrack, got the, you know, got it all and was like obsessed with it. So I was like, what about this? Can we like speak to younger girls or boys, anybody? Um, And with Josephine's movie, Josephine works like quite abstractly and, um, you know, she sent me like a 50 page image list that had like images of space (laughs) and um, just kind of anything that bounces around in Josephine's head. And that's what's so fun about working with her is like she's just this box of energy that like bursts out and anything. That she thinks comes right out. And so it's really about like kind of refining her in a way and like be like, okay, I hear this, I hear that. Now, how do we make this a reality? For Josephine, it's really sort of like cracking into her brain and letting the light shine out. And it's like, how do you do that? And it's asking her a ton of questions and like whatever comes, yeah, she's like, I want a 30 foot uh, jib arm. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, then we're going to get a 30-foot gym arm and, like, making it happen for a dance number. I don't know. But, yeah, so it kind of – I like to, like, take everything that they want to give me and sort of from that listen to it and, like, add and shape.
4: Wow. Um, For me, uh, Cheer Up Baby, Adina uh, and I, it was the first time we were working together, and we had only really met over Skype. <laughs> And you kind of had, like, we internet dated our, our director-DP relationship. Um, <laughs> and I, um, when we then did Finally Meet, it was mostly conversations about our own experiences. The film is about uh, the aftermath of um, kind of a very abrupt uh, sexual harassment situation on the subway and um it was a lot of talking about our own experiences um i think that was a very unique thing because we're both women living in new york city or have been young women living in new york city and so we talked about our own experiences and the psychology of that and and kind of where we were going another part of it was it was really really low budget small crew limited access to our locations um not No time to light, no lights. Um, so we were really focusing on um, our lead India's face, her body language, how it changes over the period of the film. And that became kind of our visual can- like canvas for that. Mm. And then um, with the, the sort of the color that we use in the film, I think um, that was the only visual references, I guess, that we really had um, beforehand. But it was, very, it was very unusual from how I usually work, um, which is more image-based just because I love paintings and photography and films and um, still lifes and whatever, um, sculptures. Um, this was really verbal, um, which was a, an interesting way to
2: get to know her. Well, for the, uh, for the Ruth Bader Ginsburg feature doc, RBG, um, it's a lot of it is archival, and um, because you know her access is very limited. So the film is st- structured in such a way that a lot of her, in order to get close to her, you have to, like a queen, work from the outer circle into the inner circle. Wow. And so there was a lot of interviews of uh, people who would describe things that she had done and and how they know each other in reference to her and uh, um, build her character that way. And the challenge for me was that each person that we would interview, I wasn't sure of how relevant they would end up being in the film. and so. There needs to be a certain, because it's an interview, it needs to be a certain um, setting that reflects in terms of the location, who they are, as well as uh, kind of fit into an overall vision. And look, she is 84. She uh, doesn't like lights whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Oh. (laughs) So um, we would have a situation, and I knew that coming up, that if I would light her, she would complain and then I would have to take the lights down but oh I have been in situations like that and I didn't want to get there so I knew because I have exten- extensive lighting you know uh, knowledge that uh super soft sources you know double bounces um will really work for her it will not hurt her eyes she has sensitive eyes and I can understand it but that meant that all the other interviews had to fall in line with it. And so, going from location to location where you don't know yet what you're going to encounter and making it look natural so that it's all fitting, that was the challenge. Wow! And I feel pretty happy about how that all worked together. I, she is amazing, she's my hero. She
0: is amazing. I actually, I also know the film and Julie Cohen is a friend and has been on the podcast and I'm so excited to see the movie. Our uh, listeners love to geek out about tools and every time I ask DPs they say well it has to be the right tool for the job you know but I'm gonna ask anyway and you can't say it has to be the right tool for the job I really want to know what cameras and lenses do you just love to use I shot
1: Desiree uh camera post on Alexa XT with paint Grose, which I've used and liked a lot uh Joseph but Josephine's movie I really kind of fell in love with the We shot on a mirror with K35s, and they're kind of very interesting lenses with like optical aberrations, and I really wanted to like exploit their kind of difficulty and kind of use it to help with the overall like, abstract nature of the film. Um, And also on that I kind of like to pull my own focus and the throw of the lens is quite uh, small. So it was easier to kind of like hop on board when I needed to but the K-35s, don't everybody go rent them because the price just goes up. But I know.
4: love to shoot 16. Any film um, is always my... I think it's because that's how I learned when I was in undergrad. It was sort of what gave me the agency to become a DP in the first place was uh, shoot, shooting uh, Super 8 and regular 8 in undergrad and developing it in VATs myself. So I feel like I'm... I I feel. Um, very protective of that knowledge and that being able to shoot on film has very much influenced how i work in digital and and i think that they're both valid but um yeah i love to shoot on 35 i'm just gonna say it
3: (laughs) for me i mean again in my documentary world at all i mean it does depend on budget logistics size of your footprint and also your physical kind of, uh, I mean, your footprint, but your physical kind of presence. You know, sometimes um, I work on projects where you want to have a smaller camera for a number of reasons. Um, so say, for instance, the C300 Mark II with like EF lensing. So I did have done a project uh, recently with um, some toddlers, young six-month-old boys that um, are having cochlear implants. So, you know, we're down on the ground a lot, you know, so having a smaller, lighter weight camera um, allows me to move a little quicker, be lower, shoot lower, um, you know, and I, I can do that all day um, on the other hand if it's a you sh- you know, shooting a larger project maybe with a little a uh, little bit bigger budget and maybe you want to have a little bit more show your presence sometimes this is actually a factor um, and if you're doing an interview with Oliver Stone you don't want to show up with a 5d or something right so um, you know so we I, I, I shoot with the Amira a lot 19 to 90 uh, the 85 to 300 the Fujinon cabrios are um, some of my favorite because they're very flexible very quick and um, easy to use in the field uh, particularly for handheld verite um, there's a trend now with a ver- with people shooting verite with primes. I'm not one of those uh, proponents, but I am. Oh, you are. Well, we can talk about yeah. that, but uh, it's challenging for me. And we can. That's a whole other podcast. But um, yeah. But. Uh, um, but it, it does. It dep- depends, certainly, on budget and footprint. And, uh, but also, it, again, it comes down with what tool is, is the right tool for you to tell the story accurately. And, and, uh, you know, but <laughs> That's not, not the answer. answer. You yeah, weren't yeah.
4: allowed to say that. Strike <laughs> so, that anyway. from the record. <laughs> so
2: for me, the uh, cameras that I use on, on, on RBG is uh, I shot everything on the Mark II. Actually, I shot uh, with two Mark IIs pretty much all the, the time. The C300. Yeah, the C300, C300 Mark, Mark II. Two. Exactly, and we shot on primes. Exclusively, and uh, I, I, that's not true. I even actually ver- even your verite. The verite I shot on uh, uh, the EF uh, zooms because I had to be so fast. We would be granted twenty minutes, you know. Wow, that is you have to have the flexibility
3: of a right. zoom at that
2: point. Yeah, interviews know? on
3: primes, but I'm saying for the verite, you were on. You well, were on for her, yeah.
2: I didn't do any. Um, Prime uh, varieté. I do it for other shoots where I shoot on the thirty-five. Most very cool, cool. you know, on the primes, and it and it means that when you're shooting on a prime handheld, it is uh, you invade somebody's territory, you know, and they they have to be able to ignore you and you have to kind of test out if that works or not or if it if it uh, interferes and sometimes you want to push your character sure. you know and, and it has a psychological force and so I like that you know I like being felt that way you know and uh, them feeling that they're on stage sometimes but it needs to, you need to see what the story uh, how it presents itself and if there's an opportunity for for it sure. or not but I really love shooting on primes and with the uh, the prices, Everything, we shot on the Amira, and uh, I shoot on Cinezooms. I love the Caprio as well, but I shot on the 17-120, to 120, and you. yeah, exactly the Canon, so I'm a, a fan of Canon lenses.
4: Can I just mention, I, I did shoot the Cheer Up Baby on the Alexa High Speed with the Super Speeds Mark II. And I, I do like that setup. I, we actually then turned around, we did that for budget reasons, and we really liked the look of it and turned around and shot a couple of music videos with the exact same setup. So nice. it was kind of, I don't know.
3: Always be learning. Always. <laughs> well, any final words for aspiring DPs? I have, I have just one thought that I, I just mentioned this to somebody at, um, at a screening before, but I, I think just, um, uh, you know, somebody who's coming up who's sort of asking me advice, but I feel like in my many years of shooting, I feel like I've learned one thing is that you have to, I have to find, like balance your work and life. You, there's no, there's work is not everything, you know, sort of align your priorities in a way that um, I, I often say. I like having a balance of jobs that feed my belly with jobs that feed my soul. So you take some that you know you're just paying the rent, um, and that's fine. There's other ones that I feel like I need to feed my soul. And so unless if you have that that imbalance, you're either you know you're earning a ton of money and you're not really feeling good about yourself, or if you do the other and you're just you know you're doing you, you can't pay your bills. You pills. can't pay your bills. So there's there's always a sort of balance. Um, um so that that's that's one thing. I just just to have a, a good balance of jobs. Um, and also be be open to whatever's coming next. I mean there's always every every job that you take there's always something you're going to learn someone you're going to meet some skill you're going to learn, some, you know, something you'll take from every job. So even if it's not like the perfect job, as long as you're kind of learning something new, um, I think it's worth taking. So I totally agree.
2: I, you know, it's, I actually go to every interview that uh, is asked of me. I take every call and even if I know my schedule is completely booked because I believe it's a people business and, you know, even if I can't be available for their job, I try to at least, you know, recommend somebody else. It's an opportunity for me to push uh, those that I mentor um and on for people who are aspiring to become a cinematographer you know i think what helped me the most is to realize that uh, um, you have to build a body of work before people will hire you you have to have uh, you know some films that you can edit together you know to a little reel because um you're an artist. You're going to be an artist. You're not just going to be a technician, and so you have to kind of uh, develop that, um, the way you see a story and how you uh, represent that. And so I would recommend get your hands on whatever you can, build up that muscle whenever you have an opportunity, create a real create a website, and then you know, align yourself with some mentors, and that's how you uh, get going. Um, I, I would say, I, I feel
4: like I would take a little bit of the business side of it because, um, I feel like that's talked about a little bit less, but get comfortable talking about yourself, get comfortable being your best advocate. And, um, a lot of people say, how do I get an agent? I need an agent to like be the next thing. And, um, I think that. An agent does represent you. That's what you pay them to do. But if you can't represent yourself, if you can't show up at a at a film festival and introduce yourself and kind of do the networking stuff, or even when you're sitting on an airplane and talk to the person next to you, if you kind of can't um, promote yourself and and not just like on on Instagram or whatever, but if you can't talk eloquently about yourself and your work, um, you're not you're not going to get the next. Level job, you're not going to kind of keep moving up. You're going to continue getting the same thing, um, or at, at least that's what I'm trying to tell myself every morning when I wake up.
2: I don't think that you need to talk eloquently. I mean, you know, I think you just that's have to talk. The the, 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 I think you just no, have to talk from the group. I think you just have to talk from the heart. I really, truly believe if you're authentic, yes. you know, to yourself and who you are, then it is not a matter of uh, speaking eloquently. Because think, look, it's my. This is not my native tongue. You know, it's like I struggle with representing myself all the time, and I'm actually not really good at being in the spotlight. But I think if you are in small settings and uh, take that opportunity, and even if at a party you're just meeting one person and you talk to them extensively, that is worth more money later down the line than um, trying to say hello to 100 people. No, truly. I think that's, that's what
4: I mean is like be comfortable. With your own voice, um, because that's that's what you're selling as a cinematographer. You're not selling somebody who who just pushes a button. You're selling your own perspective, your voice, your your eye, and, and and your your mental capacity that goes with it. So so being able to um, kind of have opinions, talk about things. I I don't mean like eloquently. In verse, I just mean put together a couple sentences have confidence in yourself I think that's the biggest thing I get questions from cinematographers of of lots of ages and in various points saying I don't I don't have confidence or I don't what they're amounting to is is I'm not I'm not confident in my work or how to how to promote my work
1: to young cinematographers I always just tell them like you know you can read as many articles as you want You can listen to this podcast and take from it what you will and it'll become part of, like, your brain's rhizome and internalize it. But then, like, throw it all away. Go fuck shit up. Do your own thing. Like, you don't need the best gear to make something that's cool and looks good. Like, don't let anything limit you and just, like, I don't know. I want, like, the younger generation just, like, topple over because everything's too homogenous. And we need, like, rebels who are going to, like, carve their own path
2: and in terms of the gear I totally agree with you I think a lot of people can get very nerdy about the gear <laughs> 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 but I think what, uh, what gear represents to me is just a convenience you know if I have a daylight balanced light that's the convenience you know it's not, it's not going to make the lighting lighting look beautiful mm-hmm. that's what you do as a cinematographer you know you take
0: that in well you heard it here folks fuck shit up <laughs> It's. uh, I'm so in awe of each of you and your work, and it's been just a total thrill to have you. So thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Thank you. A true pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. One of Ashley Connor's projects, The Miseducation of Cameron Post, went on to win Sundance's U.S. dramatic grand jury prize, and several of the other films mentioned here got picked up for distribution. So be on the lookout for them in 2018. Meanwhile, you can hear lots of other fascinating conversations on the art of filmmaking by finding the No Film School podcast in iTunes. Make sure to subscribe there or on your favorite podcast app so you can catch our Indie Film Weekly News Show, which comes out every Thursday morning and fills you in on everything you might have missed when you were busy making films. Also, be sure to visit nofilmschool.com for useful new articles every single day. Meanwhile, stay in touch. You can reach me on Twitter at LizFilm, and we are on Twitter at No Film School. See you Thursday.